Hello and welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 5. It's October 1899. The Boers have begun to invade Natal and are about to threaten Ladysmith. It's only two weeks after the war began on the 10th of October and at first the British believed they'd won two small battles at Talana Hill overlooking Dundee and Ilanslachter Station, north of Ladysmith. In this episode, we'll see how the Boers turn the screws on the British in Dundee in northern Natal. Before we get into the cut and thrust, just a quick word about the Boer forces. Except for their artillery, the entire army of 64,000 was made up of a militia of men and boys aged 16 to 60, for both the Free State and Transvaal combined. To make matters worse for them, not all could be called up together or the economy would collapse. This meant it was difficult to organise a coordinated offensive, let alone enforce hierarchical military structure and discipline. Although both republics had command structures, they were riddled with religious and political differences. Jan Smuts wanted the Boers to charge to Durban and seize the port. Commandant Piet Joubert wanted to fight a defensive war. Decisions taken by superiors were often debated and sometimes overturned or even ignored. Each burgher thought of himself as equal to the other and none wore a uniform, except for the artillery. This is a classic example of a guerrilla army, like the Taliban, for instance, in Afghanistan. In fact, officers were elected by their men rather than the British way of officers selected by the military. This is one of the reasons the British found the Boers very difficult to defeat, and similarly, why organised armies have found guerrilla movements almost impossible to detect and crush without resorting to the tactics of either winning hearts and minds or terrorising civilians. Unfortunately for British honour, terrorising civilians would be London's last resort in this war, but that's almost two years away as we approach the end of October 1899. The Boers had mobilised 35,000 men versus the British 25,000. In Natal, where we ended episode 4, there were 17,000 Boers and 16,000 British, and it's there that the Empire was about to experience a series of terrible defeats. The last we heard of Dundee, the British and Boers had fought a six-hour battle before the Boers withdrew. I'm not calling it a retreat because that implies defeat. The poor British troops who'd heard about conventional battles thought that they'd beaten the Burgers. They were only partly correct and still had failed to grasp the kind of conflict in which they were engaged. They thought because the Boers were of European origin, they were going to fight like European armies. The Boers, however, had been forged in Africa as a fighting people. They fought in a manner they thought would enable victory. Honour in the Boers' mind was living to fight another day because fighting men are scarce. The British thought fighting to the death was an honour because in Victorian England men appeared expendable in order to protect Queen and country. The Northern Natal geography also suited Boer warfare. They were armed with the terrifying Vickers Maxim, or what the British called the pom-pom, from the sound it made. It was a small cannon that fired automatically and caused mayhem when used properly. It was also highly manoeuvrable. The Boers used the new smokeless gunpowder, and that, combined with their ability to move quickly to take advantage of the hills and gullies of northern Natal, sheltering behind rocks and the high ground, made them extremely difficult to pin down and hit. The British, on the other hand, having learned from the earlier clashes in 1887 with the Boers, no longer ran around South Africa in their red coats. Now they were in khaki, blending in with the felt. In fact, the Boers began to refer to the British as the khaki. 
It was on the 22nd of October that the remaining British contingent at Dundee in northern Natal began their strategic withdrawal back to Ladysmith, despite apparently defeating the Boers at the Battle of Talana Hill. The Boers had bought up their feared Long Tom 40-pounder cannon, which far outranged the British 15-pound cannon, and with that the Boers began to shell Dundee, which came as a shock. The British war handbook had said that the Long Toms were too large to move and would remain in Pretoria. Now they were firing into the British, including the field hospital, and Pretoria was over 450 kilometres away. Clearly, they had been moved. There's a horrible description about how heavily bandaged men began to crawl out of the hospital tents as the large shells crashed around them. Major General James Yule was, however, not there to see this. He had moved his men southeast of Dundee to take shelter behind a low hill, and then he made a momentous decision to evacuate. The retreat to Ladysmith, leaving the wounded back in Dundee, along with the townsfolk of a few hundred who had no idea their British saviours were actually beating a hasty retreat, was later to be regarded as an action of dishonour. General Yule ordered his men to move out silently at night, taking both the Boers and his own wounded and the town completely by surprise. Also left behind were two months' supplies of food, ammunition and medicine, and Major General Simons, who had been shot in the stomach during the Battle of Talana Hill and had only a few hours to live. Yule decided not to set fire to the provisions, as it would alert both the citizens and the Boers to their planned departure. Furthermore, only the officers knew the reason why they were marching off at night was actually a retreat. The men believed they were advancing back to Talana Hill. It was an eight-kilometre-long column of dishonour, Oxwagon soldiers shuffling dog-tied in a cold rain in the dark. At dawn, they'd covered around 20 kilometres from Dundee, and then the men were allowed to rest. It was at this point the rank-and-file soldier realised they were in full retreat and were silent, many thinking of their comrades left behind in Dundee. The Boers, meanwhile, had not been idle. The same morning, they moved into the town and ransacked it. Denise Rates, part of the Pretoria Command, whose memoirs were published after the war, wrote... Soon, 1,500 men were whooping through the streets and behaving in a very undisciplined manner. We were not to be denied, and we plundered shops and dwelling houses, and did considerable damage before the commandants and the field cornets were able to restore some semblance of order. My brother and I were hampered by the loss of our pony, but we bought away enough food for a royal feast, and after living on half-cured bultong for all these days, we made up for lost time. There was not only the town to be looted, however, there was also a large military camp standing abandoned on the outskirts, and there were entire streets of tents and great stacks of tinned and other foodstuffs. There were mountains of luxurious goods, comfortable camp stretches, sleeping bags, there was even a gymnasium. It was the ransacking that actually saved the British as they trudged back towards Ladysmith, Yule pushing his troops forward as it bought time. The Boers remained in the town until the next day, stripping it of most goods. Reitz continues, I came upon the field hospital flying the Geneva Cross. Here I saw General Penn Simons, the commander of the British troops. He was mortally wounded, and the nurses told me he would not last out the night. Next morning, as I was again on my way up to the camp, I met a bearer party carrying his body wrapped in a blanket and I accompanied them to where they buried him behind the little English chapel. Simon's war and his life had ended. More than 500 kilometres away, in the northwest of the Transvaal, was Muffy King. It's to here that our gaze shifts at this point. 
The long siege was to begin as it would end in Mafeking with blood, death and confusion. On Saturday, 14th October 1899, four days after Kruger had technically challenged the British to war, a short, sharp, bitter conflict was fought near Mafeking. It was on Signal Hill and Five Mile Bank. It looked, smelled and sounded like war. Mafeking is still an isolated town now, close to what is now Botswana, in dry, rolling, flatland, felt, scrubland. So, Saturday, 14th October, four days after war was officially declared and Mafeking had been surrounded by the Boers. We know that, strategically, the town offered little to either Boers or the British. It was on the outer fringes of the northwest of the conflict zones. But Lord Cecil, the Prime Minister of England's son, had arrived there in July, along with Lord Baden-Powell, who was to start the scout movement later. Cecil wanted to die there. He'd been generally regarded as a failure by his father, and wanted an honourable exit, according to a letter he wrote to his wife, Violet. Cecil was there. The British could not evacuate. The Boers surrounded the town, and then cut the telegraph line. A skirmish had been reported on Saturday morning, and in town the 200 Boer women who'd remained behind jeered the British troops. It was a confused picture. The Times correspondent Angus Hamilton joined Captain Fitzclarence, who was sent by Baden-Powell to reconnoiter the area near Signal Hill, where the armoured train had come under attack earlier. The Boers saw the reinforcements coming and employed their classic tactic, fall back seemingly in retreat, which would lead the British further out. Then the Boers would suddenly dismount close to rocks or a small hill and pick off the British. Then they'd retreat once more. Captain Fitzclarence and his men marched straight into the Boer sharpshooters. Hamilton wrote, From the ridge of the Boer position, our complete formation and the situation of each unit could be seen. It merely required a little sharpshooting, keen sight and sufficient energy to cause a disaster. Our men lay upon the ground, seeking cover where they could find it, but they had neither the trees, nor the low-hanging shrubs, nor the rocks. Fitzclarence's men fell, taking shelter where they could. He refused to retreat. Artillery were on their way, he thought. They were, but his men wouldn't be happy with their first shots. As with Talana Hill, the British opened fire with their only cannon to find the first shell exploded right over their own troops huddled in one of the three Baralong huts. Luckily, no one was hurt, but it caused dismay and extreme anger. Lord Baden-Powell, waiting back in King, realised that his precious armoured train and hundreds of men were now in mortal danger of being cut off and seized or killed. After an entire day of fighting, both sides ceased fire, mainly because they were all running out of ammunition. So Baden-Powell ordered a retreat using his field telephone, but the message didn't get through. Then British reinforcements in the form of the Protectorate Regiment rode up at sunset. The Boers followed the strategic offensive tactical defensive technique when they were in the minority and melted away, living to fight another day. Baden-Powell's armoured train picked up the wounded and in turn steamed back to King. There, sharp-tongued Boer women yelled once more, and the British patience snapped. The dozens of women were rounded up and sent to jail. Baden-Powell later said it was for their own safety, as the British troops were about to brutalise them and prepared to commit atrocities in revenge. And we'll see how Baden-Powell, who founded the Scout Movement, as I said, is a rather contradictory figure. After beating the hasty retreat to King, he claimed 54 Boers killed in their four-hour engagement. The actual figure was three. The British, though, had two killed, 16 wounded.
So for all the fighting, the shooting, the entire day didn't leave a very high casualty rate. But the following day was Sunday, and as was the case in Kimberley and later Ladysmith, all actions ceased. The Boers were God-faring, if nothing else, and on the Sabbath, no war was to be fought. It would be like that for much of this war, fighting all week, rest on Sunday. A Boer doctor rode into town on that Sunday in a horse and carriage. During the previous day's firefight, a few Boers had fired on stretcher bearers, and the Boer doctor offered to have those involved executed for breaking the rules of war. The Boers were not to take second place to the British in the matter of how to conduct a civilised war. Baden-Powell bowed politely and sent the doctor back to his lines with a bottle of whiskey. However, on Monday, the next day, at 6.30am sharp, the Boer began to work. Bombardments began. This was and remains a strange little town. The houses and buildings were far apart, so shrapnel flew around, but the population were hunkered down. After a deluge of shells, not one in the town was injured or killed. Thinking their barrage had caused injuries, damage and death, the Boers were anxious about the effect and sent a man called Everett, an Englishman fighting for the Boers, on behalf of General Cronier to suggest the unconditional surrender of Mafi King to avoid further bloodshed. The inhabitants sent him back joking about feeding him tins of ham and allowed him to see that very little had been achieved during the bombardment. Later they perhaps regretted this arrogant action as the Boers began to build an emplacement south of the town for a much larger cannon and they realised their agony had only just begun. So we'll leave the town of Mafeking right there, preparing for a 217-day siege and it's only day 10. The other major town to be besieged was Kimberley. Diamonds had been discovered there in 1866, and by 1882 it was the second city in the world after Philadelphia in the USA to have electric streetlights. It was also home to the first stock exchange in Africa, which was set up in 1881. By the start of the war, it was also the city controlled by Cecil John Rhodes, the arch-colonial, who was to sow discord in the town during the time the Boers surrounded it. The 14th of October, Kimberley was isolated by the Boers. Telegraph lines were down, roads closed, railway line cut. Sir Alfred Milner, the governor of the Cape, was being bothered daily by Rhodes, who was almost hysterical, demanding British action and adding to Milner's melancholy and misery. Rhodes had become the symbol of British resistance in the Cape, despite his whining. Kimberley was full of diamonds and Rhodes had rushed there against the wishes of Milner, who didn't want to be hampered by colonial symbols dragging at his war, forcing him to alter tactics. Rhodes, on the other hand, recognised a stage, and the stage was Kimberley and he was the star actor. The arch-imperialist wrapped in the British flag then began to try and order Milner around. My opinion, he cabled Milner later, is that if you do not advance at once from Orange River, you will lose Kimberley. Urgent relief necessary, Rhodes telegraphed Milner later the same day. If lives are to be spared, help must come immediately. Then a friend financier cabled, cannot last much longer, already some have died. These cables are like modern day tweets, the Twitter of the time, but controlled by the elite. Milner tried to placate Rhodes as he would his own troops by telegraphing back, yes, it's beastly being shelled, but hold on which was the basis of messaging back from Cape Town. Meanwhile, on the 26th of October in Pretoria, a young schoolgirl called Frieda Schlossberg was keeping a journal. She wrote, 
The first batch of British prisoners arrived in Pretoria yesterday amid great enthusiasm by the local populace. The death on 20 October of General William Penn Simons is announced. The news of his death and the Boer occupation of Dundee spreads rapidly. East, in Natal, things were moving ahead. First, if you remember, the British had taken Dundee after the battle of nearby Talani Hill, but then retreated back to Ladysmith anyway. And in Ladysmith was Colonel White, who'd made his way from Durban to be at the front. On Thursday, October 26, 1899, the Dundee column, led by General Yule, which had retreated from Dundee, staggered into Ladysmith. 13,000 men were now locked in that town, which was possibly one of the worst to defend in the region. It's in a depression surrounded by mountains and hills. Also on October 26, 1899, the Transvaal and Free State Commandos linked up, and by the 30th of October, the largest British force in South Africa was trapped inside Ladysmith. And Ladysmith was north of the Tugela, which General Buller had warned would place troops trapped there in danger. The landscape in that region is characterized by broken ridges, deep canyons, thick bush and ravines, so any relief march from the south would be difficult. So the commander of the Natal force would be locked up in Ladysmith and therefore become a strategic liability. Colonel White's orders upon leaving London were simple, but he bungled. They were just to defend Natal and to prepare the way for General Buller's expeditionary force, which was on its way. White was besieged, and nothing had been prepared. All his troops could look forward to was months of suffering, and then a terrifying outbreak of typhoid. The towns of Kimberley and Mafeking were cut off from the outside world. The Boers now thought that victory was within their grasp. In London, heads were shaking in disbelief, but there was no panic. The problem of a lack of troops in the theatre of operations was about to be rectified as Britain was about to send an entire army corps of 47,000 men to South Africa. So it's the end of October and the commanding officer of troops in South Africa, Sir Redverse Buller, is about to arrive in the Cape from Britain. Ladysmith is suffering under siege and fear has spread through Natal and the Cape that the Boers are on the move. So join me next week for episode 6 of the Anglo-Boer War. If you want to follow our conversation, please look out for me on Twitter at Des Latham. Mm-hmm.